0: This week, Nick and Louis Goldberg are back for a new episode with special guest Amanda Siebert, Forbes contributor and cannabis and psychedelics journalist. Amanda joins our hosts this week to discuss her new book, Psyched Seven Cutting Edge Psychedelics Changing the World. Amanda shares some of her process for putting together the book, how she managed reporting on an industry that evolves at a breakneck pace, and some of the more interesting stories she heard on the beat. The trio also discussed some of the key topics driving the psychedelics and cannabis industries forward, including the efficacies of at-home ketamine treatments, the chances we see psychedelics evolve into a CPG product, and the repercussions of President Biden's announcement to pardon federal cannabis offenders. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with cannabis and psychedelics journalist Amanda Siebert.
1: Amanda, thanks so much for for joining us again. It's been almost two years since I think you were you were last on the podcast with us right in March 2021. Uh, it seems like a world ago, a whole lifetime ago from, yeah, I think vaccines were still just getting out then and uh, events were still getting started. It was pre the, mm-hmm. the first Wonderland and all that. So, you know, how have you been uh, s- since since last March? What, what's been going on?
2: Well, first, thanks, uh, Nick and Lewis, for having me on the show. I'm uh, really thrilled to be here again and yeah you're right it has been it feels like a lifetime ago for sure a lot has changed since that time um, but you know I'm feeling pretty good about where I'm at as far as uh, life just came back from a lovely trip to Miami met a couple of your colleagues at at Wonderland too so that was really cool um, yeah I, I definitely can not complain about uh, how life's been treating me these days.
1: Awesome. And I want to jump right into, you know, one of the, the bit we're going to cover a lot of topics on this conversation. Um, we just did the pre-interview and a whole bunch of fun topics to cover. But mm-hmm. first off, you know, you have a new book out. Um, I'd love for you to to tell our listeners, uh, you know, about the book, you know, what was the, the inspiration for it? And uh, yeah, just jump right into it
2: totally thanks so much um so this is my new book it's called psyched uh, 7 cutting edge psychedelics changing the world um and in it i talk about uh, seven different Psychedelic drugs. I talk about their history, the science behind them, um, the medical research behind them. Uh, you know, indigenous uses associated with these different substances. Uh, really, just covering them from a full uh, spectrum um, and using case studies in it as well to sort of illustrate that different people are going to have different experiences on different um, substances. That no two two experiences are alike. Uh, and sort of in a, in a teeny tiny way, just weaving in a little bit of my own um, story in the, in the beginning of the book. But really, this book is an introductory um, piece for for people who might have some questions about, you know, all this hype around psychedelics and maybe aren't sure uh, where to begin or where to look.
3: The psychedelic renaissance was kicked off by Michael Pollan's book, you know, how to change mm-hmm. your mind. And, you, you know, Michael's way of writing is through the eye and I don't mean the, the ocular eye, but through the lens of the eye himself, (laughs) right? You know, he wrote about, um, architecture and he built things when he wrote about, um, um, the food system, you know, he talked about how he ate a cow and and all these different things and how he changed the way he eats and his view on things. And when he wrote Mm -hmm. about psychedelics, you know, he wrote about his personal experiences. He took a very clinical look at the, the research and then went out and tried it and basically wrote the 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 most famous trip report in the history of the world. You were describing to us how you kept the eye out of your book as best as possible. Why? Why did you take it from a, a, a more of a remove than from the personal?
2: Well, psychedelics have had a, a really profound impact on my life personally. uh, That's definitely something I do mention in the beginning of the book. But the reason I decided to leave uh, the I, as you refer to it, out mostly of Psyched um, was there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean, I love Michael Pollan's book. I thought it was great. I listened to the audio version of it. Um, I love the research that he pulls up, the way he leaves the story in there. But I also found that for some people like this book might be a little bit too big. It might be a little bit unapproachable. Um, Maybe they don't you know, they're, they're, they're not inclined to, to, to read something that's so large. Um, and so I thought, is there a book out there that answers some of these questions that provides some of this information in a way that, um, is a little bit more condensed and that's not to say that the information in how to change your mind doesn't have value. I think it's an incredibly valuable book. Like you said, it really, um, sort of was part of this, Shift in in people opening their eyes again to the, to these substances and and sort of looking at them more closely. Um, but I wanted to create something that someone who might not have a clue about anything um, as far as you know psilocybin or MDMA or any of these substances, um, but maybe they have a lot of questions and maybe they don't necessarily have the time to to read a book that's so large or or listen to an audiobook that takes so much time. And so that's really where that came from when I wrote it. Um, Initially the title of the book was going to be The Little Book of Psychedelics. And I thought, okay, this is a great way that, you know, people it was will a nod know. to your first book. <laughs> yes, right? totally. Um, and things sort of shifted along the way, which is great. Um, but really the book is meant to be for people like perhaps my parents or or you know, my grandparents, perhaps someone that's um maybe never been open to to using a substance like this before.
3: So you list seven psychedelics in the book. Do you mind uh, spitting them out? Um, uh, and then why? Why these sure. versus all of the others? Because there are literally hundreds of both naturally occurring and um, synthetic compounds. So why'd you pick these?
2: Okay, so I'll, I'll list them in order. And in the book, they're each uh, they each get a chapter. So psilocybin, LSD, DMT. In that chapter, I talk about ayahuasca. So that's N,N-DMT, not 5-MeO. Maybe that'll be in the next book um mescaline uh, mdma iboga and ketamine and why did i choose these seven substances what i really did is looked at uh one you know what is being most researched right now two what is accessible um and three what uh what do we have sort of a, a historical understanding of um something that is not just sort of new something that also has like a a long-standing um, use among, among humans. And so that was sort of where I, where I pulled those from. I mean, obviously they're not all, you know, LSD was only uh, created in, in the 1930s. So obviously that's something that doesn't have that longstanding history, but what I do talk about in the book is, you know, ergot and the, and the use of that substance. Um, and so they're, yeah, really just trying to, to um, explain these substances in those sort of uh, buckets.
1: Can can you tell us a little bit more about the process of putting together, you know, the book, you know, those are all a bunch of different psychedelics. And, you know, as people that work in the industry, we know that this is evolving constantly and rapidly. There's there's new data being published. There's new companies being uh, formed that are working with these different drugs. Like I imagine you had to update this book probably as you were writing it several times.
2: Totally. Yeah, it was definitely a process. And I imagine that even now, um, I mean, the thing about writing a book is it takes time. And in that time, things shift. There's a certain cutoff point where like, OK, we can't make any more changes. Um, so I tried to include some of the most relevant research that I could, the newest um, research. And I also touched on some things that were um talked about you know in the in the first wave if you will um yeah there will definitely first wave
3: like the 1950s you mean
2: yes yeah first wave of research for sure um but there will absolutely have to be an update i think to this book in the future i did have to put a disclaimer (laughs) in the beginning you know that you know perhaps this information will change um The good thing is this is my second book. So I had a little bit of a framework and idea. I wasn't going into it blind. I knew what I needed to have ready, you know, to write the book. Um, I had a long list of people that I wanted to talk to. And I was lucky that all but one said yes to to speak with me which was okay like, you really, got it you got yeah. it yeah
1: yeah who was the I one i gotta <laughs> ask who
3: said no <laughs> oh,
2: i don't know if i want to name him i had the opportunity to meet him this weekend and he was really lovely and
3: no it's okay yeah no, unfortunately no. <laughs> i
2: won't I will uh i won't i won't i won't put him in that position but um yeah much love and thank you to all the people who did there was a long list of folks who were like absolutely. how many
3: how many total people do you think you spoke with
2: i think it was about 40
3: and wow. of them is there a story or or a moment that you mm-hmm. were talking to whomever and you went holy shit i this is in like you know i'm sure you have hundreds of hours of interviews oh, man. and there was like this five minute moment that just leaped out at you and said yeah this is the gold what was that moment oh, totally if you can
2: okay. can i pick two? Oh yeah Okay, so I know that everybody wants to read the words and the advice of experts in the space, but two conversations that I had while writing this book were for the sort of case study um, areas, and and you know, and case studies quotes. in
3: quotes, yeah, in, in air quotes
2: only because I'm I'm not a scientist, but really I just had people's stories and told them in in these ways. There's at least two in every chapter, and. Um, In the first chapter on psilocybin, I interviewed a woman named Iman and she told me the story of her first psilocybin experience to work through trauma uh, that she experienced in her childhood. She was abused as a child by her parents. And so she really, she she was having a very hard time working through these things. And she explained that, you know, this was not a pleasant trip. Um, It was in some ways, you know, very hard very challenging but with the help of a guide um she she was sort of able to move through these things and the story that she told me was that in her experience there was a moment where she saw her parents as children and she was also a child and she explained oh my god i'm not going to cry she she explained to me you know this feeling of like being with your parents as children and how how can you feel anything for them but just the desire to play and to be with them and that was a really emotional moment for me it really touched me I mean it speaks to the power that these substances have to change your perspective on things and she opened up about how her life has changed since then how she had, you know has yeah really changed that
3: relationship um so that she was, was able to forgive them and forgive herself in that same moment right truly right because yes. yeah that's that's a lot yeah
2: yeah um, and then a, a second story was also, you know, someone that I interviewed for one of these case studies. Um, Dave Phillips, he's a therapist here in Canada. He works with this organization called Theracil. He's doing some really,
3: really wonderful work. Can you just say what Theracil is? Because a lot of people Absolutely. may not know. So
2: Theracil is a nonprofit organization that helps uh, patients in Canada access psilocybin legally. Uh, so they've already helped. So I think... I don't even know. They've helped many, many, many Canadians access psychedelics in this way. They're also um, training therapists. And so Dave uh, is training therapists to work with psychedelics, not just therapists, um, nurses and and other people as well. Really wonderful man. And so he also told me a story about um, a ketamine experience that he had. And ketamine, obviously very different experience from psilocybin, working on an entirely different system in your brain, completely dissociative. And so he was talking about this, experience of dissociation and how he um he he was scared he was terrified by the feeling and um when it sort of calmed down and he was able to 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 relax into the experience he remembered um his wife and he was having this memory of his wife And this this um, picture sort of that they were skating on this frozen lake and it was their wedding anniversary. And I don't know why it just spoke to me in this really beautiful way that, you know, he he had felt really um, scared about the things that was going on in his life. You know, he was on the cutting edge of of this sort of movement. And, you know, is this the right thing? And he he came to this moment of comfort and peace, um, remembering the support in his life. And I think that's a beautiful experience too. I think um in life we often get caught up with all the things that are going on and questioning ourselves and uh remembering, you know, in this incredibly dissociative experience that we are here on earth and we have this support around us at all times it was really touching to me. So two totally different stories. Um but that was really that was probably my favorite part of of writing psyched was interviewing everyday folks about how psychedelics have had an impact on their lives.
3: You're a creative person, right? You, you write. Um, so. you're, you're <laughs> well, all right, we're going to, I'm going to deign. Yes, you are a creative person, <laughs> um, but you're a photographer. You're uh, uh, you write prose, you write um, journalistically. Um, and when you write about psychedelics, you know, How does the creativity that you've taken into the different parts of your life weave into how you write about the hard science? Are you able to make it, you know, how are you able to take that creativity and make what you're writing more accessible? Is there a way that you're consciously doing this or is it more of like a gestalt thing? It just kind of happens.
2: I think I just have uh, kind of this tendency to want to translate this really high level information in a way that people can digest it and i'm saying this here with a caveat that in the book i i definitely uh, relied on experts to explain those things to me and then sort of went from there and tried to present this in a way that that perhaps this is a little bit easier to understand than in a in a paper on on google scholar um So that that was really that that's really the motivation there. Um, The book actually was recently reviewed in a newspaper here in Canada called the Winnipeg Free Press. And the reviewer noted that, you know, in in most cases, when I'm talking about the function of these drugs and how they work in your mind, like I hand that off to the experts because I know um, that I'm a journalist. I'm not a scientist. I love to, you know, do my own deep dives and research, but I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. Uh, I would say I'm more of a a translator, if you will. And so really grateful to the folks like um, Matthew Johnson, who I interviewed about MDMA, his metaphor on how MDMA works in the book is so good. Uh, Robin Carr Harris, a few other folks that really were instrumental in helping me sort of present that
3: can you tell us what matt's uh metaphor was sorry we, no, we can't, can't have her give it all away this baseball
2: <laughs> it was a baseball metaphor. oh okay now that's you have to tell us say. But yeah <laughs> it's, it's okay. a good it was it was really good yeah it is really good
1: i i i think that's a really good point that we just hit on here because like very much what we think about psychedelics as people that work in the industry is the scientific part of it. But Amanda, like what you said a little bit earlier is, these have been used for, for hundreds of years where, you know, there's not scientists that were looking at how these things were applied, but they were being used in ways to to help people better themselves. And I know that you spoke with um, some indigenous folks um, that, that do come from tribes that have used this for, for hundreds of years and more of the mystical side. Can you expand on, on how you're covering that in this book?
2: Totally. So, um, several of these substances have a very, very, very long-standing history of use uh, in our world. Psilocybin mushrooms grow on every continent, so uh, I think, yeah, it would be it would have been silly for me to write about these substances and leave all of that out. Um, psilocybin, for example, in the first chapter, I talked to Inti Garcia Flores. Uh, to give us sort of this historical context of the Mazatec people. Uh, so for listeners, uh, you may have heard of our Gordon Wasson, this gentleman who uh, in the 1950s went down to Mexico, um, had a psilocybin experience with Maria Sabina. And while this is a really glorified story, we hear about it a lot. It was really the, the first introduction for um, North Americans to psilocybin mushrooms,
3: he and wrote about it in Time Magazine. Time Magazine, I mean, Time it magazine was, it yes. Was, it was the it was literally the thing that opened up the United States' mind's eye mm-hmm. to to this.
2: Yeah. So his story glorified. Everyone loves to talk about it. It's kind of interesting, but what a lot of people don't know is that uh, it really screwed things up for that town and for Maria Sabina. She was eventually chased out of her own village. Her home was burnt down. And so this is the side of it that I talk about with Inti who really explained to me why it's important for the Mazatec to use psilocybin on their own and in their own sacred way without inviting in Westerners. I also talked to Sandor Ironrope in the chapter on uh, mescaline, and he explained to me about peyote, about uh, a lot of different conservation programs and things that he's working on to sort of ensure that future generations have access to this medicine and when i say future generations that's future generations of indigenous people who uh in the united states and i and in canada have the right to use these substances I, obviously in mexico as well and so there's really um i try to speak to that side of it uh why you know i'm sure with um you know there's this conversation with decriminalized nature um with you know, the rights of indigenous peoples to use these substances. And that's something we talk about a little bit as well. Um, and then I also talk about that history with the substance iboga, um, which is an interesting medicine. It has a really um, complex history, um, complex uses. And so, yeah, I think the importance of covering that is, it can't be, uh, overstated. I really we definitely that, don't
1: want it to be forgotten from the narrative. Right.
2: For sure. For sure. I think right now there's so much excitement around, um, the science and it's wonderful. We need the science, but I kind of just want to. Yeah. Remind people that there's not just one side to this whole, uh, movement and community.
3: You know, you use the word medicine, um, when describing these things and, um, in the West, Medicine is almost always synthetic. It is not naturally occurring, mm-hmm. right? I mean, a great example is aspirin, which comes from the willow bark. Well, you know, right when you go into your local pharmacy and you buy a bottle of aspirin to deal with a headache, it's not been scraped from the inside of a willow bark. It's been synthesized. There is this belief though, amongst the community, the historic, you know, psychedelic community that, Unless you are using the naturally occurring form of the substance, you are not being honest to the medicinal power of the substance. That is at odds with the the, the global need. Right, we are mm-hmm. in a in a global mental health crisis bigger than the COVID pandemic you know, one in five adults around the world are suffering from either an untreated or undiagnosed mental health disorder that can be treated with these drugs. Where is the balance between synthetic and natural? And where is the balance between keeping that which is specific for the indigenous and making accessible that to those who need it? It's a really good question.
2: I am of the opinion that all of these substances, um, synthetic, natural, uh, should be accessible. I, you know, everybody is different and people require different, different things. People are drawn to different medicines, different substances. I'm not going to say that one is better than the other. Some people prefer natural things. Some people really, you know, want to um, stay in that sort of natural Lane, if you will, they're drawn to to that. Um, and I hear you on on um, accessibility. I mean, synthetic substances make up, as you said, you know, so many of the uh, most of the of the substances that we're taking uh, on a on a regular basis. And so, I don't really park myself on either side. Um, I do think that as far as accessibility goes, because we're all different, because we're all going to want different things, I think everything should be available synthetically and naturally i'm really interested to see what the research is going to show um you know there are a couple of different companies now researching natural psilocybin Uh, a few you know for the longest time it's been it's been synthetic so i'm curious to see how that's going i've even heard of of a company that is researching um naturally derived ayahuasca and they're using uh they're they're basically they've put, they found a way to put ayahuasca into a pill so that they can standardize it and and research the experience. So what I'm more interested in is I guess what the research is going to show around the differences. Are there any, um, I know that, you know, we know that there are differences in how people, um, respond to them sometimes. Is that placebo? Is that because they have this idea in their mind? So that is really the, the interesting part to me. Um, definitely can't can't say that I prefer one or the
3: other. I love all psychedelics. <laughs> um, you know, psychedelics are often used to treat things like depression, anxiety, even addiction and OCD, and the data on all of these are off the charts positive, as long as they are used in conjunction with therapy. Right? The drug themselves is not the tool; it is a door, like the way that. Um, all this Huxley said, like it's opening the doors of perception. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, and in the story you told earlier about the, the patient who was able to play with her parents as a child, it changed her ability to see her parents, which I, I assume was the root cause of her trauma. Everybody is, nobody escapes childhood unscathed, right? We all have some baggage of trauma from our childhood. These drugs are used to help us accept access that trauma how do the different drugs that you go through in your book you know help people differently start that conversation with the trauma that they're carrying like what's the difference fundamentally between mdma and lsd or or ketamine and 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 mescaline right because each of them have a different function in the brain but we are all dealing with trauma and that's what we are fundamentally trying to to heal
2: Totally. So this is a great way of explaining how I sort of broke up the chapters in the book. So psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and mescaline are all classic psychedelics. They sort of work in one way on the brain. Uh, when we look at the research behind the classic psychedelics, you know, psilocybin, um, especially based on recent research, we're seeing that it helps with um, treatment-resistant depression, um, with anxiety for people who are dealing with the end of their lives, Um while there's less research on LSD, we're seeing that you know, based on the information that we we learned in the 50s and 60s about this drug, it can help with substance use disorder. Um, and then when we look at MDMA, so this substance is sort of in a category of its own. In my book, uh, I've listed it as the empathogen or the intactogen. Uh, and again, this works on a on a different set of Um, or pardon me, a different system in the brain than the classic psychedelics. And what the research has shown about MDMA is that this substance is particularly good at helping people deal with post-traumatic stress disorder. So MAPS, obviously, at the leading edge of that research, um, trying to help veterans, you know, people who have suffered from um, sexual trauma and these sorts of things. Uh, And then when we look at iboga and ketamine, um, I've put these substances in based on my research in the category of dissociative drugs. Um, and what's really interesting here for, on a personal note, when I was writing this book, all but the last two I had had an experience with. And then while I was in the editing process, I had an opportunity to have experiences with these dissociative drugs. And wow, like just to, to really uh, have a firsthand experience of how different these substances are. It can't, yeah. Again, another thing that can't be overstated. I mean, iboga and ketamine really, while they're very, very different substances, the dissociative experience um takes you out of your body. And what I talk about in the chapter on ketamine is how that characteristic of the substance is particularly helpful for people who are dealing with eating disorders. And I know some people see the headlines around psychedelics and eating disorders and they roll their eyes. Um, but I spoke with Reed, Dr. Reed Robinson, who's been doing this work for a very long time. And From he
3: was with Nova Mind and he's now with Numenist.
2: Yes. Yeah. And so he's explained some um that two, actually,
3: two, two clients of KCSAs, by the way.
2: Okay. Uh yeah. So he was able to explain to me in a in a really in-depth way how profound that has been for, for people that he's had on his studies, women dealing with anorexia and bulimia. Um so yeah, a boga. Um the research around iboga and ayahuasca uh, has really, you know, it's it's a harder substance to research. People are really scared of it. Some people refer to, you know, iboga and ibogaine as, you know, oh, the, the psychedelic you can die from, and it is it is particularly risky. But like all psychedelics, you know, when the risks are mitigated, um, it can can be effective for certain people. Well, and what the research
3: risk- just all, all I want to say is it, it lowers your blood pressure, and if you are doing this without proper medical supervision then yes, yes there is a risk mm-hmm. and 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 i at some point i would love us to talk about the difference between the medical side of this and the self exploration side but yes. I, I didn't mean to cut you off but i did That's want true. to give people who are not familiar with the risk that you were describing because it's also a similar risk with ketamine your, mm-hmm. your blood pressure can lower to the yep. point that you you know these are not toys these no. are medicine, the yes. same way that you wouldn't go out and buy um, uh, an anti-cancer drug and just take it because you mm-hmm. had cancer at mm-hmm. home. You go to somebody who is an oncologist who can properly infuse you with these drugs. You know, some of these drugs, there are potential negative side effects.
2: Totally. And that's also something that I talk about um, the risks. I'm not glossing over any of that in the book. Uh, significant risks. You know, associated with some of these drugs if they're used in the wrong way.
3: Period. And if I man, if by the way, if I mansplained just then, I apologize. No. I'm, I'm a 50. I'm like a 50 year old dude. So please
2: don't don't apologize. I was just trying to cover everything in yeah. a short way, and what you've said is really important. It's not to be glossed over. Absolutely. So thank you.
1: I, and I want to stick on this a little bit because there's been. The, the the risky parts of this, especially when uh, the ketamine conversation, because I think with what we've seen with mm-hmm. like the exception, particularly within the Ryan Haight Act that has allowed for um, physicians to prescribe through telehealth rather than having like Lewis, you just described going into an office to get prescribed these drugs, but you're still expected to work with a, you know, prescribing physician on this, but there are companies that are, Making accessible ketamine for at-home treatments—you know—they they have protocols for whether it be uh, adult supervision or different videos or imagery that they want on there. But I've seen a couple of stories this over the last two weeks of you know in-clinic physicians and other people that are interested in the success of this industry worried about the, the risks of, of, you know, mailing ketamine to people, you know, obviously there's different dosings and stuff for different people, but I'm interested in what your thoughts are on this, Amanda, like at what point is the accessibility conversation need to be centered here and and, you know, making it available to patients versus are we getting into overly risky territory of, you know, mailing these drugs to people and, you know, not having the same supervision that you would get in clinic?
2: I've had some very interesting conversations about this topic over the last couple of days. So I'm very excited (laughs) to talk about this. Ketamine. I mean, ketamine does have risk. When we think about the, um, the use of ketamine in, in recreational settings, you know, it can be addictive and so on and so forth. That's the first thing I'm going to say. The second thing is accessibility is important. There are, as you said, lots of people struggling with mental health issues, that are kind of at their wits end. They don't know what to do and they see psychedelics or perhaps ketamine is an option. And, you know, it it represents hope for them potentially. I am a little bit worried about mailing ketamine to people and having them use that substance at home unsupervised. I think that is a potentially very dangerous situation. You know, I've read some of the same stories you're referring to. Um, There was a one a few weeks ago that talked about one company in particular that is sort of not even really screening people very well. It's sort of just, oh, well, you know, okay, here, you're, you're sad. You don't have a clinical diagnosis, but we're going to mail you the substance anyway. And that's not to say that people don't deserve to, to use ketamine. I'm not making any sort of moral judgment here. I'm just looking at the potential risk of that. I think having... Um, Someone supervise a ketamine session is obviously beneficial for many reasons, safety being the top of that list. And so it does worry me. It does worry me. I've had uh, I had a conversation with someone a few weeks ago who said, you know, the, the worst case scenario of these mail order ketamine services is that bad things happen. And then ketamine is scheduled higher and becomes less accessible. So it's a really nuanced conversation as far as accessibility. Uh, I, yeah, that's kind of where I land on that.
3: Can I just give a counterpoint? Just a slight one, right? Please. Because yes. it, it's it's a fair, it, you know, it is an argument that is often made in drug policy, the what about the children argument, right? Which is what if something bad. I don't know bad, that
2: that's the argument I'm making.
3: But. No, no, but no. It's it, what I mean is it's a straw man argument, right? Which is, what if something bad happens? Um, and that's it, that. In historic drug policy, the it's the what about the children argument. It's not that it could fall into the hands of children. What I mean is, in case something bad happens, hmm. but you can overdose and beca- you can become addicted to and or overdose on Ritalin you can become addicted to and are overdose on Wellbutrin. You can become addicted to any, SSSR, any SSRI. And if you are not properly monitored in your dosing, you take your whole bottle, mm-hmm. there can be a significant side effect. And in the ketamine industry, the at-home industry, they don't send you your unlimited supply. They send you a single right. dose at a time. And if you as a patient choose to, not take it and then lie, of course, you can, uh, something bad can happen. Mm-hmm. But it's a lot easier to go get a street version of ketamine and use it from an addictive perspective than it would be to go to one of the at-home companies. You're, you're really intending to do that. Absolutely. That said, I understand exactly what you're saying. I just, you know, Full disclosure, we represent some of these companies. So, you know, it's our job to be able to make the argument in their defense, which is what I hope I'm doing effectively. Um, um, But the other side of it is there is risk to any Mm -hmm. drug, whether it's aspirin, Tylenol, or ketamine, right? None of them are safe if taken in an unsafe manner.
2: Totally. I mean, that's that's the other side of the conversation and that's not something I disagree with. It's true. So many substances that are readily available that people are, are, are prescribed uh, are problematic and, and cause problems for people. So I think we have to have this conversation as a whole. If we're going to talk about ketamine, we need to talk about all these other substances that are also creating problems uh, mm-hmm. for people and that are Issue. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know that it's one or the other. I think it's both. And I think that to have a conversation about ketamine requires us to talk more seriously and actually do something like the opioid crisis. I don't know about, I mean, I do know about the United States, but my, my knowledge of, of where I live in Vancouver, British Columbia is obviously better. I mean, this overdose crisis has been going on here for over 10 years. Our government makes platitudes You know, but the data is released every month and, you know, everyone posts about it for a day on Twitter and then nothing happens. And so that's really hard to watch. And so I I really believe that rather than just having conversations about these things and how they're ruining people's lives, we need to do something.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I agree. You know, you you. This leads into the conversation about medicine, right, because you use the word earlier in the conversation that these, these drugs are medicine. And I agree with you. I believe that they are medicine. And you referenced the Mazatec and Maria Sabina. Historically, the indigenous peoples had a specific intent in using, whether it be psilocybin or peyote, um, uh, you name it, the, the, the naturally occurring substances, ayahuasca, um, it was to heal. Whether it was to heal a a spiritual illness, an emotional illness, or even a physical illness. Um, the decrim Nature movement and a lot of the you know the advocates in the space think that everybody should have access to anything anywhere at any time to do with it as they so choose. I worry personally that we will have a backlash like we did in nineteen seventy. Um, when the Controlled Substances Act was passed, that you know, if we walk into a dispensary and buy a bag of mushrooms, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with that, that um, we will lose the power of these medicines to actually be medicine. And that starting from a medicinal track, whether it's a clinical track, a shamanistic track or whatever, but like a, a, that there is a medical component to this is important. A lot of people disagree with me um, and many of them have said it either to my face at conferences or um, when I was on social, I am no longer on social media on social media. What do you think? Should we be looking at these as medicines or, or should we be more, you know, like the cannabis industry, which went to consumer packaged goods because the medical side of cannabis was always the stocking horse for consumer packaged goods.
2: Mm-hmm. I'm of the mind that, because everyone has their own personal preferences. People are called to different substances that there should really be a spectrum of of availability as far as how people are going to use these substances. So if someone wants to get on an airplane and fly to Peru or Brazil and use ayahuasca mm-hmm. in that setting, cool. If someone wants to go to a clinic, sit with a therapist, have an eye mask on, listen to music, you know, come next week for a follow-up session, that kind of thing, I think that... Should also be available to them. That being said, psychedelic drugs are one tiny part of the equation, and I think that three things are intrinsic to, um, you know, creating a safe container. One, you should probably look into preparing yourself a little bit. How can you do that? Um, find a community group, um, that sort of thing. Wait, read your book. <laughs> Totally. That's, that's, thank you for saying that. So preparation, um, community and integration without these three things. And I'll explain what those things are and how you can implement them in a second, if if you like, but, um, I really, I really think that without these, these elements, a psychedelic experience is, is just like a a potentially fun time. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm not also not opposed to the recreational use of these substances. I've had some great times, on some of the books I've written about. Um, but that's not really the, the question. I mean, the medicalization of these substances is why they're, you know, in the forefront right now, why we're having this conversation, why I wrote the book. Very, very, very important. Um, and so I think if you do decide to do the thing where you leave your community to go use a psychedelic substance, the risk of that is you come home and no one else in your life is, has had that experience. And so you're, you're a little bit alienated. You're not sure who to talk to about what you've just experienced. And perhaps you have a little bit more trouble dealing with, with what you've experienced and and sitting with those insights. So this is why I'm emphasizing preparation and community support and integration. So preparing yourself, obviously, maybe you're hiring a coach beforehand. Maybe you're sitting with someone who, um, can sit with you a few times before you even use the medicine to talk you through what's going to happen and answer all of your questions. Um, Putting yourself in a safe place mentally before you use a psychedelic, highly recommend it. Definitely do a little bit of work beforehand. Um, And then as far as community, um, if you can find a local support group or um, an integration circle, there are so many resources online. If you can't find one in person, Uh, and then as far as integration, everyone loves to talk about integration. What is integration? Uh, integration is what you do with the things that you learned in your, in your psychedelic experience to put it short in, in, in is really, that's like a one line, but it could be, it could be anything. It could be, you know, um, if you, if you experienced some, some insights or saw some things about how you could potentially, uh, Improve your situation. It's it's perhaps you know changing your diet and exercising and and uh, spending time in nature and being with your friends and family. You know all of these other pieces are really critical to to um, experiencing. I guess the change that people look for with psychedelics. And I'll caveat that. I'm almost done. Thank you for your patience. <laughs> I'll caveat that by saying that some people take psychedelics and they do all of those things and they still don't benefit so psychedelics are not a panacea they're not an end and end all be all to all of your problems you have to be willing to to go a little bit deeper and sometimes even if you do that you know it doesn't always work for people so not here to um you know sing their praises per se
3: when you referenced earlier um, the use in the fifties of LSD for treating addiction, for alcoholism yes. specifically, right? And there was a lot of work done at Johns Hopkins and at NYU. And Bill W., um, who founded um, Alcoholics Anonymous, actually was a huge proponent of LSD therapy for alcoholics mm-hmm. because, in his opinion, the, the ability for an alcoholic to stay sober was the accessing of a spiritual moment and that most alcoholics... We're not able to do that without the aid of something else and that the board of AA said this is this is fucking crazy how can we give a drug to a to an addict now we're seeing data coming out of companies like awaken that are using ketamine therapy to treat alcoholism and the data is overwhelming like it's 86 percent of of alcoholics who go through a course of ketamine therapy with cbt are sober six months later you know why does it work? like you said they that you know you know addicts are 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 people who are often viewed as of weak moral character, but when they do this, something changes in them. What happens you know and you may not know the details of these of these studies, but you know as you have looked at Iboga and its efficacy for treating opioid addiction and other you know psilocybin for treatment resistant depression, what happens? in that moment of experience that changes the patient's ability to live?
2: Great question. So I would say first, probably a little bit longer than a moment, the psychedelic experience that sort of shifting that's happening to use a scientific term, uh, that neuroplasticity. So what does that mean? Essentially that's regions of the brain that have not spoken to each other, talking to each other again. And so in in that experience, you're really able to sort of reframe some of the beliefs you have about yourself, about life. Um, maybe you've thought your entire life that you deserve to to live a shitty life. And I'm only swearing because
3: you, you, you did. <laughs> Thanks, That's Lewis. Just, for, for it's completely okay with that. me to drop the F bomb, the S bomb, yeah. whatever you want.
2: Totally. Maybe you 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 have this internal belief that you're not worthy you know, and, and so you continue to live that out and perhaps, and, you know, I've witnessed this in other people, I've experienced it myself, the psychedelic experience can provide you with a way to see that in a different way, can sort of help you um, look at that part of yourself and, and talk to it and say, Hey, can you quiet down a little bit? You know, there's other things in my brain that I'd like to to hear from and talk to, and and that's sort of the experience. Um, I, in in simplest terms, that that I've experienced, that I've seen in other folks, and so, yeah, that that talking of of uh, regions of the brain that aren't always connected to each other, it's sort of like part of your parts of your brain are almost like turning on. Uh, yeah.
3: Can we pivot the conversation a little bit? Yes, please. Um, because you cover both cannabis and psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these are two industries that are conflated often, Um, you know, and it's in large part because of how they were born or at least how they were perceived to have been born, who invests in the space. And you're seeing a lot of the same talking heads as a journalist how do you view the Venn diagram of these two industries? Like, where is the the real overlap and where is the real difference between cannabis and psychedelics? This is a good question. I, I'll do, I'm on fire. Do
2: overlap. I really like this question. I haven't um, thought about this a whole lot. I have sort of pulled back from reporting on the business investing side of things, so I won't really speak to that. I know it's a shit show um it's always a shit show um maybe there's that in common i mean they're both it's all the canadians hard fault, to predict. The yeah i know i'm sorry <laughs> actually i won't apologize for them but yeah I, I hear you there um it's a little bit messy i think on the financial side but where is the overlap in other areas there are some really um smart folks who you know are, are interested in bringing research or out on, or pardon me, who are interested in researching these substances and and talking about them more often, which I think is important. You know, I think a lot of people have sort of resigned themselves to this idea that, oh, well, they're like, cannabis is legal now. So it's cool. We don't have to do anything about it anymore. And I'm, uh, what I like about covering these spaces is in both, both of them, there are people who are willing to push the envelope. Um, that's really what, what excites me the most about covering them in what ways are they different? I feel like in some ways, like I've seen a lot of people shift from covering or pardon me, not from covering, from being in the cannabis space and getting totally fed up with it and moving on to work with psychedelics. So that's been an interesting thing to observe. I don't necessarily know what that uh, speaks to. I think there's certain, probably a lot of things that that speaks to, but um. Yeah. They're both developing. And so it's hard to really say what's, what, you know, what's going on. I'm just curious to see how things are going to change. I mean, from a legalization perspective, from a medicalization perspective, are we moving forwards? Are we moving backwards? Yeah. I'm just here for the, with with popcorn (laughs) (laughs) watching.
1: Yeah. I mean, the unfortunate part is it really seems like the, the medicalization of cannabis has been kind of left behind. Um, especially yeah, especially as we've seen, we got we're we're recording this in early November. Like we're going to see potentially five more states, um, in the U.S. Uh, form some type of medical or, or recreational markets expanding here. But ever, I'm in Arizona. Ever since it switched over to recreation, you hear almost nothing about medical unless you should get your card so you get a discount at the store. Like that's the medical conversation right now, and I think oh, yeah. that's really disappointing. And so. I'm wondering, you know, uh, who are are you, how much are you still following the, the medicalization of cannabis right now? And is there anything interesting that you've been hearing that, uh, our listeners should know?
2: There's definitely a few things I've been paying attention to there. I mean, from a Canadian perspective and sorry, I, yeah, I have to speak to this cause it's what I'm familiar with, but I covered cannabis before it was legalized here. And at that time, a lot of the stories were like about people who were having, uh, positive experiences with cannabis from a medical perspective. I loved writing about that and interviewing people about that. And then when legalization happened, it was like all of that disappeared. And all of these companies, you know, it's all about promoting your business and your product and recreational this and that and retail stores. And, and for folks that are, I mean, particularly in, in Canada, where they're over 300,000 people with um, medical uh, recommendations. Technically, it's not a prescription here. You have to get a recommendation from your doctor. Uh, And to know that those folks are sort of, like all of them are left behind. They don't really have medical stores to go to. Uh, They don't have, a lot of them don't have physicians. And if they do, their physician just says, go to the rec store where things are overpriced. Uh, Yeah, it's very problematic. And to see that happening in a lot of US states as well, is. It's frustrating because the reality is, I mean, the medical model is what, as you referred to it earlier, Lewis, it really, it was, it's, it was the beginning of all of this. And to just leave all that behind is shameful. Uh, it's inconsiderate. There are so many things. I won't list all the words I have for it.
3: <laughs> I, I, it's interesting because, you know, we work with maps and um, you were talking about pushing the envelope and people who push the envelope, Rick. Doblin, who is the founder of MAPS, you know, has always been one to say, I don't accept that. That is not a way that I believe that the world will continue to work. And while they are most well known for the work that they're doing with MDMA, they are actually doing research on the use of cannabis to treat PTSD. And they're doing a clinical and FDA clinical trial on this in Michigan. The cannabis industry in the United States was originally started from the medical perspective. If you remember what happened in 1996 in California. It was about medical access to cannabis, right? And then you saw it develop in other states. Slowly but surely and inexorably, medicine and cannabis became synonymous. And then in 2012, we saw adult use happen in Colorado, in Washington. And then, boom, we're now at 30-plus states across the United States. And the idea of cannabis as medicine has just fallen off. Maybe when we see um, cannabis become legal in the United States, we'll see real medical research into it. And there are a lot of researchers who believe that cannabis used intentionally can actually have psychedelic properties, similar genetic impacts on the brain. How do you see this uh, cannabis as it compares to other traditional or historic psychedelics? Absolutely. So
2: I actually had some people ask me, why didn't you put cannabis in your little book of, or pardon me, in your book on psychedelics? Uh, and my answer is always, well, I have a book on cannabis, a separate book that you can read,
3: but which is, called, which is which it's is called, which is called the
2: little book of cannabis. And where can uh, one buy it? It's on Amazon and it's at Barnes and Noble and in your indie bookstores, hopefully. And yeah. we'll
1: include links for, for both books for people to to purchase when they're going through the show notes.
2: Awesome. So Yeah, definitely psychedelic properties with cannabis. I've had psychedelic experiences with cannabis. Anyone who's accidentally taken 100 milligrams of THC in an edible can probably (laughs) speak to that as well. Uh, And I think it's wonderful to be used in that way. You know, before I um, started using psychedelics in a serious way to help me through my own mental health issues, cannabis was a really an an ally for me uh, in, in that it, you know, allowed me to, Turn down the the voice of that inner critic, and really, in in that way. So, absolutely, cannabis is a psychedelic. I think uh, for people that may not have access to psychedelic substances, maybe they're they're not ready, or they they don't feel like they want to go there yet. Cannabis, it's accessible in you know most of the U.S. and in Canada. Uh, definitely, I'm an advocate for for. Uh, that substance as well. As far as the medicalization and the, and the research around these two things, um, yeah, I think that there's uh, as far as what's going to happen in the U.S. I'm really up in the air about it. You know, is there going to be more research when it's legalized? Is what I'm trying to get at here. Mm-hmm. Because when that happened here in Canada, a lot of people thought, oh, now there's going to be tons of uh, tons of research into cannabis. I even wrote about it in the New York Times, and and I, I had to write a follow up piece on another platform a few years later because it just didn't really happen. What happened is there was just more red tape for, um, researchers to go through. It's, you know, problematic. Um, it, there's more, the paperwork takes longer than it did before the drug was legal. And so I wonder, is there going to be more research into cannabis or not when that happens? I obviously hope there is. Um, but you're very right that like the, the sort of move towards rec has left a lot of that in the dust
3: you know Bruce Linton I'm sorry no, go ahead well uh, the
1: th- the thing I wanted to touch on was cuz I think that that's all really interesting and we've the thing we haven't talked about yet is the Joe Biden's announcement I know you're you're in Canada but I'm I'm sure you you heard about it when he was you know he's going to pardon the people that were convicted of federal mm-hmm. uh possession crimes but the the other part of it on the you know looking at potentially descheduling or rescheduling the cannabis and so I take it from there, you don't think that his, his announcement went far enough because it doesn't create, it doesn't alleviate that red tape that you, that you just mentioned. It's, it's Mm -hmm. still very much up in the air. Mm -hmm. If, if you had the prime minister's ear or the president's ear for, for five minutes to be like, Hey, this is, this is an important thing that you guys should look at when it comes to medicalization of cannabis. What would you, what would you want to say to them?
2: Oh, I love this question. I would say that it it needs to be looked at more seriously. One, it needs to be made more accessible. Two, and the research needs to be prioritized. Three, because we have so many people who are taking substances that may have tons of side effects that may make them feel not so pleasant. Maybe they're taking one drug to you know overcome the side effects of another drug, um, and I'm and I'm not. Uh, a plants over pills person. Uh, I very much acknowledge that pharmaceuticals are powerful substances and they really help people through through um, through issues. I'm not here to say one is better than the other, but people should have the option is all mm-hmm. I'm saying. And they should also have the education. One thing I've seen here in Canada is since uh, the recreational legalization of this substance, nobody's talking about the medical benefits and you can't actually even go into a store and get that kind of information. It's illegal. If a bartender tells you, oh, this will help you sleep, like they could get fired. They're not actually supposed to do that. They can speak to their own experiences if they want to. But if an elderly woman wants to take something for pain or for sleep and has zero frame of reference, going into a store and asking questions, that's not actually going to help her. And so, where can people find this sort of reliable information? I mean, there's some information listed on the Health Canada, you know, website and so on, but it's hard to find. It's always moved around. It's not. It's not practical and it's not helpful. So, educating people on the fact that this substance is something that could potentially help them, giving them the option, is what this is all about. And I would say it's the same argument for psychedelics. You know, um, people should have choice.
1: So Amanda, we know that you, you, you've cut back a little bit on, on, Mm -hmm. uh, your journalism. Um, it's like with Forbes and stuff, you're, you're promoting the book and all that. Um, but, you were recently at Microdose Wonderland out in mm-hmm. Miami, the the second annual conference for that. Um, you know, you moderated some discussions. I would I would love to know what caught your attention at, at this year's conference. Um, were there any you know speakers that really brought up some some topics that that resonated with you, or um, developments or trends that you saw that have you really excited about what we're going to see in the industry over the next year?
2: Absolutely, there were some. Incredible conversations. One of them was on sex and psychedelics. It featured my good friend, uh, Nicole Hodges. If you don't know her work, please look into it. It's incredible. Uh, Yeah. It's also a little bit controversial. She talks about psychedelics and sex and BDSM. That's all I'll say. That's your prompt to go look her up. Um, Who else? I really enjoyed, there was a great conversation with Reggie Watts and some folks from that movie have a good,
3: Donic about- Carey, who's a friend.
2: Yeah, he was. He was Don- great. Donic Donic's Don- him- a
3: legitimate friend of ours, and we're and he's <laughs> launching a Hollywood studio called Good Trip Studios, who we represent.
2: Awesome, Donic is great. We had a great chat. So they they had a great conversation about uh, the culture of psychedelics and media. They had talked about that that Simpson scene where Homer licks the toad, which uh, like that was. I was <laughs> thinking during that conversation. I'm like, that was probably my first real exposure to what a psychedelic experience could be as a child uh, that was really fun obviously hearing from folks like robin carhart harris and and rick doblin was really cool i had the opportunity to give rick a copy of my book and he said he said thank you amanda and i said me like <laughs> you know i interviewed you you're anyway yeah so that was really cool honestly the coolest part of the event for me was the opportunity to meet people who i've been talking to through a screen for two years. Um, to to give copies of my book to folks who were generous enough to give me their time and wisdom and to make connections with new people. I mean, there were so many folks at this event uh, and it was really neat to share time and space and conversation with people from all over the world. Um, Miami is also beautiful. I'm from a very cold corner of the world. So to like, Yeah, being really humid weather, everybody's smiling.
3: Vancouver is awesome. Come on.
2: Vancouver is awesome, but it snowed last night. It's like 30 (laughs) degrees cooler here than than it was in Miami. So I'm struggling a little bit. At least it's sunny today.
3: (laughs) Yeah, but that means you can go skiing soon, right?
2: I don't partake in that particular particular sport, but yeah, it is beautiful. I do like to go snowshoeing and off-roading and all sorts of fun things in the snow. So it's not all bad.
1: Are are we going to see you uh, get back into contributing more again on the on the journalism side? Like, when can we? I I guess expect to see you back at Forbes or New York Times or where else?
2: Absolutely. So right now I'm writing for a publication called Healing Maps more regularly. Uh, I've taken like a short break right now just because Wonderland was busy, um, but working on a few things for them this week. Um, I have actually a podcast of my own coming out this month um, called Root Medicine. Plug away.
3: (laughs) Sorry, called Uh, what?
2: called Root Medicine, and it's all about the substance, Ibogaine. Um, so watch for that. Uh, I won't explain too much because I want you to check it out. Um, but I talk with some really great folks, some of the top experts in the world on on Ibogaine, uh, and I'm really excited about it. It's been a long time in the making. So,
3: yeah. Cool. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us in a really wild kind of free freewheeling um conversation. Um and for me, it's a real joy to be back podcasting. It's infrequent. Um, and when I was given the opportunity to to talk with you, I leapt at it. Um so Nick, thank for having thank you for having me back. And Amanda, thank you for having this conversation. It's been really, really enjoyable.
1: Yeah, oh, and Amanda. Before we let you go, where can uh, people go and buy uh, Psyched, the seven cutting edge psychedelics changing the world?
2: So, you can buy Psyched on uh, Amazon, on Barnes and Noble. Um, I'm hoping to have some book launch events in the US in the new year. So, watch for that, maybe in LA or New York. Uh, I have a, yeah, you can also buy it on my website very soon. I'm going to be listing some signed copies there if you want to do that. So, uh, and my website is com.
3: Can you spell your last name, please? Sure.
2: It's S I E B E R T.
3: Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: Thanks again to Amanda Siebert. Uh, cannabis and Psychedelics journalist for joining Lewis and I today to talk about her book, Wonderland, and just everything within the these industries. Um, you can check out her work at outlets like Forbes, um, her new podcast, Root Medicine, and of course her book, The uh, Psyched Seven Cutting-Edge Psychedelics Changing the World, available on her website, amandasebert.com that's spelled S-I-E-B-E-R-T, um, and you can also make sure to follow her on Twitter, at Amanda underscore Siebert. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Green Rush. If you want to chat with Lewis and Chris or I, you can find us on Twitter at the handle at the underscore Green Rush or on Instagram at the Green Rush underscore podcast. Drop us an email at greenrush at kcsa.com. We want to know your topics, your guests that you want us to be speaking to as we look towards 2023. And don't forget to subscribe to The Green Rush and your favorite podcatcher. That's one take, Shay. One take.